This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne Part 1, Chapter 11 Half an hour later Cyrus Harding and Herbert had returned to the encampment. The engineer merely told his companions that the land upon which fate had thrown them was an island, and that the next day they would consult. Then each settled himself as well as he could to sleep, and in that rocky hole, at a height of two thousand five hundred feet above the level of the sea, through a peaceful night, the islanders enjoyed profound repose. The next day, the 30th of March, after a hasty breakfast which consisted solely of the roasted tragopan, the engineer wished to climb again to the summit of the volcano, so as more attentively to survey the island upon which he and his companions were imprisoned, for life perhaps, should the island be situated at a great distance from any land, or if it was out of the course of vessels which visited the archipelagos of the Pacific Ocean. This time his companions followed him in the new exploration. They also wished to see the island, on the productions of which they must depend for the supply of all their wants. It was about seven o'clock in the morning when Cyrus Harding, Herbert, Pencroft, Gideon Spilett, and Neb quitted the encampment. No one appeared to be anxious about their situation. They had faith in themselves, doubtless, but it must be observed that the basis of this faith was not the same with Harding as with his companions. The engineer had confidence, because he felt capable of extorting from this wild country everything necessary for the life of himself and his companions. The latter feared nothing, just because Cyrus Harding was with them. Pencroft especially, since the incident of the relighted fire, would not have despaired for an instant, even if he was on a bare rock, if the engineer was with him on the rock. "'Pshaw!' said he. "'We left Richmond without permission from the authorities. It will be hard if we don't manage to get away some day or other from a place where certainly no one will detain us.' Cyrus Harding followed the same road as the evening before. They went round the cone by the plateau, which formed the shoulder, to the mouth of the enormous chasm. The weather was magnificent. The sun rose in a pure sky and flooded with his rays all the eastern side of the mountain. The crater was reached. It was just what the engineer had made it out to be in the dark, that is to say, a vast funnel which extended, widening, to a height of a thousand feet above the plateau. Below the chasm, large, thick streaks of lava wound over the sides of the mountain, and thus marked the course of the eruptive matter to the lower valleys which furrowed the northern part of the island. The interior of the crater, whose inclination did not exceed thirty-five to forty degrees, presented no difficulties nor obstacles to the ascent. Traces of very ancient lava were noticed, which probably had overflowed the summit of the cone before this lateral chasm had opened a new way to it. As to the volcanic chimney which established a communication between the subterranean layers and the crater, its depth could not be calculated with the eye, for it was lost in obscurity. But there was no doubt as to the complete extinction of the volcano. Before eight o'clock Harding and his companions were assembled at the summit of the crater, on a conical mound which swelled the northern edge. 
the sea the sea everywhere they cried as if their lips could not restrain the words which made islanders of them the sea indeed formed an immense circular sheet of water all round them perhaps on climbing again to the summit of the cone cyrus harding had had a hope of discovering some coast some island shore which he had not been able to perceive in the dark the evening before but nothing appeared on the farthest verge of the horizon that is to say over a radius of more than fifty miles no land in sight not a sail over all this immense space the ocean alone was visible the island occupied the centre of a circumference which appeared to be infinite the engineer and his companions mute and motionless surveyed for some minutes every point of the ocean examining it to its most extreme limits even pencroft who possessed a marvellous power of sight saw nothing and certainly if there had been land at the horizon if it appeared only as an indistinct vapour the sailor would undoubtedly have found it out for nature had placed regular telescopes under his eyebrows from the ocean their gaze returned to the island which they commanded entirely and the first question was put by gideon spilett in these terms about what size is this island truly it did not appear large in the midst of the immense ocean cyrus harding reflected a few minutes he attentively observed the perimeter of the island taking into consideration the height at which he was placed then my friends said he i do not think i am mistaken in giving to the shore of the island a circumference of more than a hundred miles and consequently an area that is difficult to estimate replied the engineer for it is so uneven if cyrus harding was not mistaken in his calculation the island had almost the extent of malta or zante in the mediterranean but it was at the same time much more irregular and less rich in capes promontories points bays or creeks its strange form caught the eye and when gideon spilett on the engineer's advice had drawn the outline they found that it resembled some fantastic animal a monstrous leviathan which lay sleeping on the surface of the pacific this was in fact the exact shape of the island which it is of consequence to know and a tolerably correct map of it was immediately drawn by the reporter the east part of the shore where the castaways had landed formed a wide bay terminated by a sharp cape which had been concealed by a high point from pencroft on his first exploration at the northeast two other capes closed the bay and between them ran a narrow gulf which looked like the half-open jaws of a formidable dogfish from the northeast to the southwest the coast was rounded like the flattened cranium of an animal rising again forming a sort of protuberance which did not give any particular shape to this part of the island of which the centre was occupied by the volcano from this point the shore ran pretty regularly north and south broken at two-thirds of its perimeter by a narrow creek from which it ended in a long tail similar to the caudal appendage of a gigantic alligator this tail formed a regular peninsula which stretched more than thirty miles into the sea reckoning from the cape southeast of the island already mentioned it curled round making an open roadstead 
which marked out the lower shore on this strangely formed land. At the narrowest part, that is to say, between the chimneys and the creek on the western shore, which corresponded to it in latitude, the island only measured ten miles. But its greatest length, from the jaws at the northeast to the extremity of the tail at the southwest, was not less than thirty miles. As to the interior of the island, its general aspect was this, very woody throughout the southern part from the mountain to the shore, and arid and sandy in the northern part. Between the volcano and the east coast, Cyrus Harding and his companions were surprised to see a lake, bordered with green trees, the existence of which they had not suspected. Seen from this height, the lake appeared to be on the same level as the ocean, but, on reflection, the engineer explained to his companions that the altitude of this little sheet of water must be about three hundred feet, because the plateau which was its basin was but a prolongation of the coast. "'Is it a fresh-water lake?' asked Pencroft. "'Certainly,' replied the engineer, "'for it must be fed by the water which flows from the mountain.' "'I see a little river which runs into it,' said Herbert, pointing out a narrow stream, which evidently took its source somewhere in the west. "'Yes,' said Harding, "'and since this stream feeds the lake, most probably on the side near the sea, there is an outlet by which the surplus water escapes. We shall see that on our return.' This little winding watercourse and the river already mentioned constituted the water-system, at least such as it was displayed to the eyes of the explorers. However, it was possible that under the masses of trees which covered two-thirds of the island, forming an immense forest, other rivers ran towards the sea. It might even be inferred that such was the case. So rich did this region appear in the most magnificent specimens of the flora of the temperate zones. There was no indication of running water in the north, though perhaps there might be stagnant water among the marshes in the northeast, but that was all in addition to the downs, sand, and aridity which contrasted so strongly with the luxuriant vegetation of the rest of the island. The volcano did not occupy the central part. It rose, on the contrary, in the northwestern region, and seemed to mark the boundary of the two zones. At the southwest, at the south, and the southeast, the first part of the spurs were hidden under masses of verdure. At the north, on the contrary, one could follow their ramifications, which died away on the sandy plains. It was on this side that, at the time when the mountain was in a state of eruption, the discharge had worn away a passage, and a large heap of lava had spread to the narrow jaw which formed the northeastern gulf. Cyrus Harding and his companions remained an hour at the top of the mountain. The island was displayed under their eyes, like a plan in relief with different tints, green for the forests, yellow for the sand, blue for the water. They viewed it in its tout ensemble. Nothing remained concealed but the ground hidden by verdure, the hollows of the valleys, and the interior of the volcanic chasms. One important question remained to be solved, and the answer would have a great effect upon the future of the castaways was the island inhabited? It was the reporter who put this question. 
to which, after the close examination they had just made, the answer seemed to be in the negative. Nowhere could the work of a human hand be perceived. Not a group of huts, not a solitary cabin, not a fishery on the shore. No smoke curling in the air betrayed the presence of man. It is true, a distance of nearly thirty miles separated the observers from the extreme points, that is, of the tail which extended to the southwest, and it would have been difficult, even to Pencroft's eyes, to discover a habitation there. Neither could the curtain of verdure, which covered three-quarters of the island, be raised to see if it did not shelter some straggling village. But in general the islanders live on the shores of the narrow spaces which emerge above the waters of the Pacific, and this shore appeared to be an absolute desert. Until a more complete exploration it might be admitted that the island was uninhabited, but was it frequented, at least occasionally, by the natives of neighboring islands? It was difficult to reply to this question. No land appeared within a radius of fifty miles. But fifty miles could be easily crossed, either by Malay proas or by the large Polynesian canoes. Everything depended on the position of the island, of its isolation in the Pacific, or of its proximity to archipelagos. Would Cyrus Harding be able to find out their latitude and longitude without instruments? It would be difficult. Since he was in doubt, it was best to take precautions against a possible descent of neighboring natives. The exploration of the island was finished, its shape determined, its features made out, its extent calculated, the water and mountain systems ascertained. The disposition of the forests and plains had been marked in a general way on the reporter's plan. They had now only to descend the mountain slopes again, and explore the soil in the triple point of view of its mineral, vegetable, and animal resources. But before giving his companions the signal for departure, Cyrus Harding said to them in a calm, grave voice, here, my friends, is the small corner of land upon which the hand of the Almighty has thrown us. We are going to live here, a long time, perhaps. Perhaps, too, unexpected help will arrive, if some ship passes by chance. I say by chance, because this is an unimportant island. There is not even a port in which ships could anchor. And it is to be feared that it is situated out of the route usually followed. That is to say, too much to the south for the ships which frequent the archipelagos of the Pacific, and too much to the north for those which go to Australia by doubling Cape Horn. I wish to hide nothing of our position from you." "'And you are right, my dear Cyrus,' replied the reporter, with animation. "'You have to deal with men. They have confidence in you, and you can depend upon them. Is it not so, my friends?' "'I will obey you in everything, Captain,' said Herbert, seizing the engineer's hand. "'My master always, and everywhere!' cried Neb. "'As for me,' said the sailor, "'if I ever grumble at work, my name's not Jack Pencroft. And if you like, Captain, we will make a little America of this island. We will build towns, we will establish railways, start telegraphs, and one fine day, when it is quite changed, quite put in order and quite civilized, we will go and offer it to the government of the Union. Only, I ask one thing. 
"'What is that?' said the reporter. "'It is that we do not consider ourselves castaways, but colonists, who have come here to settle.' Harding could not help smiling, and the sailor's idea was adopted. He then thanked his companions, and added, that he would rely on their energy and on the aid of heaven. "'Well, now let us set off to the chimneys,' cried Pencroft. "'One minute, my friends,' said the engineer. "'It seems to me it would be a good thing to give a name to this island, as well as to the capes, promontories, and watercourses which we can see.' "'Very good,' said the reporter. "'In the future that will simplify the instructions which we have to give and follow.' "'Indeed,' said the sailor. "'Already it is something to be able to say where one is going, and where one has come from. At least it looks like somewhere.' "'The chimneys, for example,' said Herbert. "'Exactly,' replied Pencroft. "'That name was the most convenient, and it came to me quite of itself. Shall we keep the name of the chimneys for our first encampment, Captain?' "'Yes, Pencroft, since you have so christened it.' "'Good!' "'As for the others, that will be easy,' returned the sailor, who was in high spirits. "'Let us give them names as the Robinsons did, whose story Herbert has often read to me. Providence Bay, Whale Point, Cape Disappointment.' "'Or rather the names of Captain Harding,' said Herbert, "'of Mr. Spilett, of Neb—' "'My name!' cried Neb, showing his sparkling white teeth. "'Why not?' replied Pencroft. Port Neb, that would do very well. And Cape Gideon. I should prefer borrowing names from our country, said the reporter, which would remind us of America. Yes, for the principal ones, then said Cyrus Harding. For those of the bays and seas I admit it willingly. We might give to that vast bay on the east the name of Union Bay, for example to that large hollow on the south, Washington Bay, to the mountain upon which we are standing, that of Mount Franklin, to that lake which is extended under our eyes, that of Lake Grant. Nothing could be better, my friends. These names will recall our country and those of the great citizens who have honoured it. But for the rivers, gulfs, capes, and promontories, which we perceive from the top of this mountain, rather let us choose names which will recall their particular shape. They will impress themselves better on our memory, and at the same time will be more practical. The shape of the island is so strange that we shall not be troubled to imagine what it resembles. As to the streams which we do not know as yet, in different parts of the forest which we shall explore later, the creeks which afterwards will be discovered, we can christen them as we find them. What do you think, my friends?" The engineer's proposal was unanimously agreed to by his companions. The island was spread out under their eyes like a map, and they had only to give names to all its angles and points. Gideon Spilett would write them down, and the geographical nomenclature of the island would be definitely adopted. First they named the two bays and the mountain Union Bay, Washington Bay, and Mount Franklin, as the engineer had suggested. Now, said the reporter, to this peninsula at the southwest of the island, I propose to give the name of Serpentine Peninsula, and that of Reptile End, to the bent tail which terminates it, for it is just like a reptile's tail. Adopted, said the engineer. Now, 
said Herbert, pointing to the other extremity of the island, let us call this gulf which is so singularly like a pair of open jaws Shark Gulf. Capital! cried Pencroft. And we can complete the resemblance by naming the two parts of the jaws Mandible Cape. But there are two capes, observed the reporter. Well, replied Pencroft, we can have North Mandible Cape and South Mandible Cape. They are inscribed, said Spilett. There is only the point at the southeastern extremity of the island to be named, said Pencroft. That is the extremity of Union Bay? asked Herbert. Claw Cape! cried Neb directly, who also wished to be godfather to some part of his domain. In truth, Neb had found an excellent name, for this cape was very like the powerful claw of the fantastic animal which this singularly shaped island represented. Pencroft was delighted at the turn things had taken, and their imaginations soon gave to the river which furnished the settlers with drinking water, and near which the balloon had thrown them, the name of the Mercy, in true gratitude to Providence. To the islet, upon which the castaways had first landed, the name of Safety Island. To the plateau which crowned the high granite precipice above the chimneys, and from whence the gaze could embrace the whole of the vast bay, the name of Prospect Heights. Lastly, all the masses of impenetrable wood which covered the Serpentine Peninsula were named the forests of the far west. The nomenclature of the visible and known parts of the island was thus finished, and later they would complete it as they made fresh discoveries. As to the points of the compass, the engineer had roughly fixed them by the height and position of the sun, which placed Union Bay and Prospect Heights to the east. But the next day, by taking the exact hour of the rising and setting of the sun, and by marking its position between this rising and setting, he reckoned to fix the north of the island exactly, for, in consequence of its situation in the southern hemisphere, the sun, at the precise moment of its culmination, passed in the north and not in the south, as, in its apparent movement, it seems to do, to those places situated in the northern hemisphere. Everything was finished, and the settlers had only to descend Mount Franklin to return to the chimneys, when Pencroft cried out, "'Well, we are preciously stupid!' "'Why?' asked Gideon Spilett, who had closed his notebook and risen to depart. "'Why, our island! We have forgotten to christen it!' Herbert was going to propose to give it the engineer's name, and all his companions would have applauded him, when Cyrus Harding said simply, "'Let us give it the name of a great citizen, my friends, of him who now struggles to defend the unity of the American Republic. Let us call it Lincoln Island.' The engineer's proposal was replied to by three hurrahs. And that evening, before sleeping, the new colonists talked of their absent country. They spoke of the terrible war which stained it with blood. They could not doubt that the South would soon be subdued, and that the cause of the North, the cause of justice, would triumph, thanks to Grant, thanks to Lincoln. Now this happened the 30th of March, 1865. They little knew that sixteen days afterwards a frightful crime would be committed in Washington, and that on Good Friday Abraham Lincoln would fall by the hand of a fanatic. End of chapter